creative force. That's its energetic arrangement. And that, the narrative that, is nonlinear. It's you're always circling the subject. I know everybody's remembering. Yeah, everybody's remembering. I like to remember things my own way. <laughs> but um, it just makes me think of the the line Beckett said about Joyce's books. He said. These books aren't about something. They are the thing. They are the thing. And I think that's what she's trying to do. This book this, is history. This book is the body. It's not about these things. It is these things. This is the conclusion of a novel in which the narrator is um, unreliable. It's inhuman. It's inhuman at the face. Characters at the edges and on the edge. Remaining a perpetual possibility. Lonely, violent, deeply American life. Only in a world of speculation. True ease in writing comes from art, not chance. Very fine is my Valentine. Very fine and very mine. You're listening to the Grand Podcast Abyss with John Pistelli. Great on puffed up with his retinue. Hey everybody, you're listening to the Grand Podcast Abyss. I'm your co-host, John Pastelli, and I'm here with my trusty sidekick, Sam Worthington. How are you doing today, Sam? I'm doing very well, John. Glad to be here with you today. And what's on your mind, John, today? You know, I, I read, I read, I know we talked about reading um, Toni Morrison's great novel, Beloved, and I was, um, I was in that all week, and that was quite a journey. Um, so what what are we what are we talking about today? Uh, what's on your mind? Well, Sam, we decided I think probably a month ago that we were going to read Beloved for uh, for this episode because we mm-hmm. planned things out a little bit, and I was really shocked at the beginning of this week because we were going to talk about probably the foremost novel in the American or English language canon about maternity about the experience of maternal loss and mm-hmm. maternal sovereignty. And we're recording on the Saturday of the week when the draft opinion of uh, the Supreme Court was released discussing the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Mm-hmm. And I thought that's an extraordinary confluence of a text and an event. And... It's extraordinary for a number of reasons beyond even the obvious ones having to do with this novel's themes. Because I've been reading Toni Morrison since I was a teenager. Um, I think I read Beloved in the 11th grade. And I've read all of her novels and frequently taught her when I was an adjunct professor in an English department. And I've taught Beloved and some of her other books, several uh, several other which are about this topic of maternal sovereignty. And one of the things that's often fascinated me so much about Toni Morrison is, well, there's two things. Mm -hmm. One is that I think if you read her works carefully, they're much less politically predictable than she's been positioned as an author in the Mm -hmm. constellation of American writers. And part of the reason for that is she once uh, wrote in an essay about sitting down for an interview with a journalist, and she'd said to the journalist, uh, could you not ask me a question about race? Could we have a conversation about anything other than race? Uh, and she, her example, she said, for example, why don't you ask me about Gerard Manley Hopkins? Wow. And which, she, is, which is kind of the opposite um, priority of, of subject matter that 
dominates literary studies today. It's yeah. quite the opposite. It's don't ask me about Gerard Manley Hopkins. Ask me about race. Right. And in other moments, she did say she would want to foreground race because sure. that was part of you know her, who she was and what she's her dynamic and broad. She, yeah. she contains multitudes. Absolutely. She's a great American writer. But what struck you about that? Well, I thought it was a very pointed reference because I think that when Morrison was first becoming famous in the 1970s and then really famous in the 80s and 90s, it was still a moment when the canon was more closed than it is now and maybe there was a greater novelty for the majority white readership of a black author or a black female author and said that tended to be foregrounded. And I think maybe by the end of her life, she died in 2019, I think, and by the time we're recording this in 2022, maybe it is interesting to think about other elements of her identity because we, I think we've all been, well, I think you and I have had a much broader education than maybe someone who was educated in the 50s or the 60s. And mm -hmm. so it's not so novel to be talking about a black writer because we've all read many black writers and maybe what's more interesting is what's different between them. Very interesting. Yeah, it is very interesting. And she has, first and foremost, an authority not in rejection of a tradition but in dialogue with it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think she knows more than I can say or any one of us can say. She knows just the magnitude of power um, from which she, she, she draws, and that's that source of Faulkner and, and Melville and Joyce and how situating herself directly within it is um, it's not an obstacle but it's a it's something that supercharges her her work and her subversion yeah and I took the reference to Gerard Manley Hopkins to be somewhat pointed because when I think of Toni Morrison more and more and the more I read her but it also helps me understand why she made such an impact on me when I was young, mm -hmm. is I, I actually think this is a Catholic writer. And this is a Catholic writer from the industrial Rust Belt. Mm -hmm. And someone who grew up in parents were working class, gave her the opportunity to become lower middle class from which she was able to launch herself into the professional class. And she converts to Catholicism at the age of 12 and sort of from there grows up with Catholicism in uh, Lorain, Ohio, which is an industrial city pretty close to Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it just always was interesting to me because when I first picked Toni Morrison up when I was 17 and started reading her books, I thought, I know this world. I feel at home in this She's world. She's always been near to you yeah. in some way. And it's not, and do I feel that way about other female writers, other black writers? No. But do I feel that way about most male writers, most white writers? No. I, I think she's writing from a world that's adjacent to the one I'm from. And I think you've mentioned this on the pod before, and if, if you don't mind me um, recalling those personal connections you, you referenced, you're from Pittsburgh, mm -hmm. you, um, and you yourself had a Catholic upbringing. Mm -hmm. 
um, so those personal residences um, you shared with with Toni Morrison and that came through in your experience of reading her? Yeah, and maybe not so much beloved because that's obviously about a much more particular African-American 19th century circumstance, but novels like Sula or Song of Solomon that actually okay. were set more more in that world. And that gets to her identity. Well, I think it gets to the fact that we need to be um, aware of the broadness of identity, that that there's gender and there's race and those are very important things, but there's class and there's religion and there's region. And these are also areas of difference and connection between people. And people never bring this up because it it might be phony and untrue. <laughs> but <laughs> what seems to me maybe perhaps a possibility, there's an and you part of me wants to resist even entering into that that matrix or that way of measuring people's attributes and valuing them and then determining what they're allotted to do socially and creatively, what they're not allowed to do mm -hmm. based on those parts. So part of me wants to reject that whole entire framework. Yeah, me too. That we're speaking <laughs> in. Um, but part of me realizes that that's not reasonable or apt um, or even tactful right now. Mm -hmm. So why do it? Then the only way to really exist alongside it is to maybe understand it and make contributions or experiment with it because it's it's anything but a closed system yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's very open and i wonder along those lines i wonder if you talk about class uh, location uh gender all these categories we know well what about sensibility? Well, there's that too, yeah. And um, <laughs> what about there's just something about Toni Morrison that yeah. strikes something in me that strikes something back that I could I could go to uh, somewhere with 200 people who share her more overt identity characteristics, and you might not be able to find one in that group who shares that connection of sensibility mm -hmm. who will laugh hysterically at at um, Bartleby the Scrivener. Well, yeah, and she, and it's interesting, I read her, I read Beloved and Song of Solomon the same year I read The Sound and the Fury as I lay dying. Uh, Bartleby and Benito Chirino, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. So I sort of got her in that tradition that she's obviously calling back to in certain ways and that modernist sensibility of, Mm -hmm. uh, interest in the inner life and the mm -hmm. life of the body and the experiments with language. Um, but yeah, and I, and I also think the way that that connects in writers like Joyce and Hopkins to the Catholic sensibility, which I think is a sensibility as well as a set of doctrines. And so I, tell me more about that, this Catholic, well, um, I, uh, uh, what do they call it in, in literary theory, uh, elementary literary theory? The lens, the, the Catholic <laughs> lens you're looking through. Right. Well, here's where – so now I'm going to go – I'm going to go in a controversial direction. You prepared to go on a journey with me? Take a journey with me. I sir. live in controversy. Okay. So the the abortion thing comes down this week. And as you know, like I'm, we, we both, because we talk about the news and politics a lot on this podcast, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I was looking at the 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 controversy and what both sides are – and then there's actually not just two sides. What multiple sides were saying about this. And I kept being struck by the 
what I can only call the gothic tones in which the liberals describe the pro-life or anti-choice or whatever word you want, this sensibility that Mm -hmm. with all this reference to, we're talking about Beloved, what's the other famous female authored novel of the 1980s, The Handmaid's Tale, which sucks, by the way. Um, And sorry. (laughs) Sucks what? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because here's a novel, The Handmaid's Tale, written by, I like Margaret Atwood, but she can't launch this Protestant dystopia without all of this Catholic let's just imagery. Say, let's just say she's the Ayn Rand of the left. <laughs> Maybe a little <laughs> bit. Um, yeah, I'm not a big fan of The Handmaid's Tale. Um, Cat's Eye, that's a good Margaret Atwood novel. But anyway, um, this Gothic, and I use the word Gothic because what is Gothic? That's an English tradition of Protestants imagining what it would be like if the repressed Catholic Southern, Latin, sometimes Muslim, Oriental, other came back and haunted you. And so there's all this, the the darkness, the evilness of these evil Catholic conservatives, and they want to control the body, and they want to bind you in these robes and and all of this. And and it just struck me because I, I just thought, well, you know, I went to Catholic school for kindergarten through eighth grade. And the older women who educated me were very devoted activists on this topic. And they would make us write letters every year to our congressional representatives to do something about abortion. And every year they would go to, they would at least send a representative from the school for the March on Washington on January 22nd, the anniversary of Roe versus Wade. And you know, this is something my grandmother believed. And and I had a moment where I just thought, I actually had a moment where I thought, like, these people don't have any idea what they're talking about as far as my background or my experience or what the, particularly the women I knew believed and what they felt and what their convictions were. And they've... A more, uh, more pro-choice yeah, associates yeah. view. Yeah, which is fine because I... Um, I had a moment on Tumblr on the Grand Hotel Abyss where I I was ranting against the feminist philosopher Kate Mann. Do you remember this? Yeah, you know that acronym Grand Hotel Abyss is Gaha. Gaha. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I I went Gaha when I because yeah. she had a, a tweet a tweet thread where she said, "You mustn't teach abortion." She's a philosophy professor. You mustn't teach abortion as if it were an ethical issue. It's strictly a political issue, and the idea that there's anything wrong with it is a political cudgel dreamed up by these conservatives. That seems dishonest. Yeah. And I thought, you know, that's kind of a betrayal. We're all from multiple cultures, you know? So I, you know, my background is this Catholic culture, this lower middle class Catholic Mm -hmm. culture. And I thought I wasn't offended on behalf of that. I thought I was offended on behalf of the culture I understood myself to share with Kate Mann, which is the culture of John Stuart Mill, the culture of liberal discussion. Mm -hmm. And so I thought she had betrayed that. But then I realized, no, I actually am somewhat offended on behalf of of those old women who are all dead now and didn't live to see their very slow, patient, Sisyphean labor of political activism potentially pay off. And I do share the culture of John Stuart Mill, and I am broadly a civil libertarian, and I'm not strongly metaphysically Catholic, so those politics aren't actually mine, uh, lest our listeners worry. But I still thought there was something of a betrayal 
you know. But there's there's still the soul. There's still the soul. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wherever that enters the fetus. So tell me what you really think about what's going on this week. <laughs> well, no, I'm actually going to change the subject a little. So, <laughs> um, so I remembered in the 90s, Tony Morrison, who we're going to talk about more in a moment. We, we, we will get to Beloved, I promise. Um, but she edited two collections of essays on two controversial political conflagrations of the 90s. One was about the O.J. Simpson trial, and she edited that a collection in which she wrote an introduction. And that's the one I know best because that's the one where she made a set of remarks about um, rape and domestic violence that people who know about them find rather shocking. Mm-hmm. Um, but And I had read that one a couple times, and I, I sometimes would share those remarks with my students in introducing Morrison just to disabuse them of the notion that they knew what her politics were from knowing her Mm -hmm. race and gender. Um, But what I hadn't read, so I illegally downloaded it today and read it, um, was her her introduction to a collection of essays she wrote about the Clarence Thomas confirmation hearing. Wow. And we've talked about Clarence Thomas on this podcast before. Um, And in the introduction, she writes about... It's pretty brilliant. She uh, Have you ever read Robinson Crusoe? Sadly, no. It's actually not very good. Um, though it's, it's foundational, so you kind of have to read it, but it's not yeah, that great. I, I care a lot about foundations. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, because she, she does a lot with it in this essay. Um, in Robinson Crusoe, not unlike The Tempest, actually, it's about this mariner who's cast away on an island, and he eventually meets up with a black man who's on the run from his tribe that had tried to um, kill him. They're cannibals in this book, so they had tried to eat him. And so he runs away and he hooks up with Robinson Crusoe, our white English mariner, and they develop a master-servant relationship. Mm -hmm. There's even a moment where Friday, the black man, abases himself to Crusoe and puts his foot on his neck. Mm. And... Morrison analogizes Clarence Thomas to Friday because she looks at his biography and she sees that he felt very outcast from a very early age from the black community. He had been mocked for his aspirations and I think also for his skin color. She's very attuned to to colorism in the black community. And the shades. Yeah, the shades. Um, That comes up in Beloved um, and in many of her books. And she notes that Crusoe or or Clarence Thomas and Friday share this sense of being in flight from a culture that had oppressed them, but it was theirs. And they end up being the servants of a culture that oppresses the entire culture from which they're fleeing. Okay. And end up representing the interests of that dominant culture. Um, and I don't know, you know, is that a fair assessment of Clarence Thomas? I don't know. Maybe, maybe I probably think in some ways it's not. But And he would never think about it that way because he's too much of an individualist. Yes. Yeah. And That takes a collective mind to right. think in those terms. Yeah. Morrison's nonfiction, if you only read her nonfiction, you would think she was not really alive to that individualism. That is part of human experience. Now her fiction is rife with it. Well, the perf- even just the very performance of it is yeah. is such an individualist um, rocket through 
through the canon. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's quite it's quite astonishing uh, the way she constructs those sentences, so true to her. And of course, the last line from from Setha, "Me, me, yeah, am I my own? Mm-hmm. Well, you just spent two hundred and seventy pages convincing everyone that you are right, your own, right, um, and you belong in this world." But couldn't that charge against Thomas be turned back on her and yeah in in the sense that in the, <laughs> in the sense that I saw her give a lecture in 2014 at UC Santa Cruz right as you know if we're if we're tracking uh, peaks and and of politically correct uh, multicult zealous sort of a zealous multicultural approach to literature. 2014 for me is somewhat of a peak. I mean, yeah. those were peak years. Mm-hmm. And she sits right up there and she she talks about white male what dead white male authors for 50 minutes and talks yeah. about the metaphysics of good and evil. I've seen that. Yeah, in, 20, in 2014. Yeah. yeah, I almost was. I remember the first time I watched that, I was almost like holding my breath. Is she going to mention a not even? Is she going to mention a female author, a black yeah. author? She didn't. So isn't that isn't <laughs> couldn't the Clarence Thomas critique? In that precise way, be turned back on her. Yeah, and it's for me. It's not a you know for me. It's not a charge because I am more. Maybe I'm. Maybe she and I would just disagree. And is it because I'm a white male? I don't know. But I, I, I do see a certain value in individualism. Uh, I at least think that the indiv- individualism and collectivism are always going to be in attention, and probably both are necessary. But you can't ever hope that one completely defeats the other. Um, but the thing about the essay, as she said, the thing she charged Thomas with wasn't so much just individualism, but was, this is kind of presumptuous of her in a way, but that's, I, I love that about her anyway, is that she said he only saw the part of the community that hated him and didn't recognize the part of it that loved him and something like that had died in him. Mm-hmm. And it made me think you know, great authors, there's the line that people have that the great authors read you as well as you read them. And I thought, mm-hmm. oh, that's that was the problem I had when I read Kate Mann saying abortion's not an ethical question, is I remembered all those old Catholic women that when I was 14, all I wanted was to get away from them, to become an individualist and read Nietzsche and John Stuart Mill. But actually, they did love me and they did cultivate my talent and, and see what was worthy in me and gave me a good education. And that meant that I had to, at this moment, respect their worldview, even if I couldn't share it. Wow, that's stunning. So so you were personally struck by Toni Morrison's critique of Clarence Thomas, that he disavowed his original community based on its negative aspects and lost sight of the positive, loving, nurturing aspects of it in his trajectory to Supreme Court justice, conservative. And you personally felt that blow through the through the experiences of your Catholic upbringing and, and views on life and conception, um, and you're turning away from that, and you felt that now this week with, with the current liberal response. Yeah, a little bit. Wow. What a what a beautiful moment of self reflection, and it's just you and Toni Morrison and 
Clarence Thomas sitting on a bench somewhere in, <laughs> yeah. in, Ohio, in, in Pennsylvania or Ohio. Right, right. Clarence That's, Thomas is, <laughs> is drinking something out of a brown paper bag. <laughs> Tony Morrison is he, eating a donut. <laughs> and, and you're there scrolling through your Tumblr. <laughs> yes. I mean, that would that not be a great uh, group of people to eat lunch with? <laughs> <laughs> they loved me, but I didn't give a shit. <laughs> Things to say. <laughs> Fuck them anyway. <laughs> but so. the core love and the soul doesn't go away. And yeah. is there a tension there? I mean, what sort of of what sort of character and what sort of person, what sort of thinker, writer contains that tension? I mean, that seems like a grinding core tension a character capable of of housing that yeah what does that do to someone well i think you have to have that to be a great novelist because you have to be able to contain those multitudes all the different places you've been and people you've been and views you've held because the novelist can't well, I mean, you can if you're a hack, but but the, we were talking about great novelists. The great novelists can't simplistically represent certain viewpoints. Um, I mean, you see this in Morrison's novels, even when she has characters who are explicit white racists or male characters who are uh, sexual assaulters and rapists, even them, she gets in their heads. She tries to see, well... Why is this persuasive to this person? Why does this person, what is it that impels this person to behave this way? Uh, what are the roots of this? You know, and this is, these are the thought patterns of a merciful person. Yeah. This is mercy. Yeah. Yeah, there is. I, I, I always shy away from moral language because, as you point out, I like Nietzsche. I, I don't. But... <laughs> I think we should use more of it on the podcast. I know. But I'm a Nietzschean and I, I go in fear of it. But there is. A... No, you're you're a decent, kind hearted man. <laughs> well, who knows you. the difference between right and wrong? Well, that's, who you, you. that's who you are. <laughs> I do think there is a kind of, I mean this in the least moralistic, sentimental way possible, a kind of compassion in the greatest writers, even whatever the ideology they're speaking on behalf of. We saw this, we talked about this with Shakespeare and Homer, the way they represent Caliban and the Cyclops. Um, and at their conscious level, were they abjecting these figures because they had some imperial mindset? I'm sure they were. But in the way in which they're great writers, they can't even help but give voice to everyone and to all possible viewpoints. What do you mean by compassion? I think I just mean it literally, etymologically, suffering with, imaginatively suffering with a person to understand why they're the way they are. So, John, we're, at, we're, we're swimming in this fluid of this episode now. Mm -hmm. We're in the fluid of the episode now that we've created. One part embry embryonic, one part, one part African-American, one part... Uh, Catholic? One part Catholic, one part Supreme Court. Right. So we're in this, we're in this but I want you to give birth to the, I want you to give birth to the the real life of this episode. So right. bring it, bring it into the world for us. So how do you synthesize some of this stuff with, with Morrison debates over abortion? Where do you see it in Beloved? So Beloved is a novel from 1987. Um, in which 
It is Morrison's most famous novel. I, I wouldn't say it's her best, but it is her most famous. Um, and it is a historical novel or a, you know, metafictional or postmodern historical novel. Because I think as we're going to talk about, there's a lot in it that doesn't, how can I put it, doesn't seem credible for the 1870s. Absolutely. Um, but I don't think that's a flaw. I think she knows what she's doing there. But it's set in the 18... 18- Welcome to post-war American literature. Exactly. <laughs> um, oh, do you know, I'm going to say this before I forget. Yeah. I read an interview with Morrison in which they asked her, this was years ago, they said, what, uh, what, what, who are your, your favorite living authors? And she said, and I thought this was very touching. She said, the, well, the writers I buy in hardcover when their books come out. And she was already rich and famous by this time. So mm-hmm. I thought it was sort of touching that she still had that mentality that you would not just splurge on a hardcover. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, you know what the first name she said was? Who? Thomas Pynchon. Yeah, no, no shizzy shit, man. <laughs> come on. So that was a digression. But um, because t- uh, Sam is our resident, Thomas Pynchon, super fan. Well, Beloved was published in... When? 87. And you know, you know, Mr. Pinchon was, check this out. And I would, I'm going to be very excited to reread Mason Dixon in July. Stay tuned, uh, kind listeners, um, with this on my mind. Because there are some things she did, especially with some of those historical references to Cherokees. Mm-hmm. And she has a way of historicizing in sort of rapid succession and these, these bursts of historicization. The text isn't laden with a historical context. She doesn't work to engineer a, a historicized world about her text. Yeah. But at certain points, she'll do a turbo blast mm-hmm. of this historic. It's like a historicizing gust. Yeah. Um, which is not the case of Pynchon, but I, the way in which history was wrestled with and the way in which American writers of the 20th century brought to bear their imaginative and artistic techniques onto history is is one of my favorite it's one of my favorite things about this art form yeah. that period and these type of writers yes um and their powers so of course Morrison loved Pynchon Pynchon loved Morrison Morrison loved DeLillo and DeLillo loved Pynchon mm-hmm. yeah no I think that's true um and so if, if you haven't read the novel the the basic Subject matter is it is about a woman named Setha who has um, escaped from slavery in the 1850s and escaped while pregnant. And she arrives at her sort of safe destination, this household presided over by her mother-in-law. But it's the time of the fugitive slave law. And the her white the white owners come back to claim her. And she's so horrified by the prospect of going back and having her children go back to slavery that she kills her baby daughter. And she she's going to try to kill all of her children, and she kills her baby daughter. And then they finally they, – they sort of stop her from killing the other children. And then she's eventually sort of released She's sort of, because some, some kindly white abolitionists and uh, some members of the free black community are able to get her you know, free from prison. And so the novel actually begins 18 years after this event. Mm-hmm. And the premise is that she's haunted by the ghost of this baby that she killed, uh, the beloved of the title. And 
the ghost eventually takes human form right at the moment when Setha meets uh, a friend of her husband's from the plantation for the first time in 18 mm-hmm. years. And they, Paul D, and they fall in love and they seem like they're going to start a household. And then suddenly this ghost sort of in the flesh. And it's very, we're, I think we'll probably talk about all the intertextual references. It's very turn of the screw. Is this a ghost? Is there a, is there a more mundane explanation, et cetera? But it right. seems like there's this haunting and... Uh, and how that haunting is, it takes its course and is resolved is the theme of the novel. Well, my operating principle is embodied or disembodied. Um, if the, if it's experienced as a haunting, it, it has all the same effect. Right. Yeah. That's sort of my general principle with ghosts slash haunting slash literary specters and wraiths is mm-hmm. if it has the effect on the subjectivity of the haunted or who's haunted it form is less of a concern than effect. Yes. And what that has to do with what we were talking about at the beginning of the episode is obviously there's a lot of questions about the analogies between infanticide and abortion and what are the relations of because there's a famous quarrel within feminism between what's considered like a white middle class feminism that's exclusive, seems to be exclusive to the experiences of women who are able to and wish to enter the professional class. And so there's a lot of disparagement of maternity, domesticity, uh, an emphasis on reproductive choice. And then on the other hand, the historical experiences of black women going back through slavery and Jim Crow, who's almost... If you think about it, they really had, in the 19th century, the opposite problem. The the whole point of slavery was often to demolish the family. They weren't able to to raise their children. Their children weren't their own. They weren't able to form families. Well, and to um, encourage uh, more offspring because of the market value that that, uh, uh, slave children would fetch. Right. So there's this this economic churning. Yeah, yeah. Rather than the individualist... Uh, um, prevention of something that would encumber their path, or sort this liberal white liberal feminist attitude. Um, it's it's quite the opposite. It's like the reproductive system is is seized to the sort of a collective economic churning mm-hmm. and used like a like a productive machine, right? Um, yeah, for purposes of labor. And so this novel has a very fascinating relation to the discourse of reproductive rights because on the one hand what she does is almost a kind of post-birth abortion but on the other hand the reason she does it is because she's about to be deprived of the right of being that child's mother the role Mm. the role she's she she almost if i can put it this way she almost aborts the child because she's not going to be allowed to be the child's mother. Mm, and that's right. So, so what uh, what does that leave us with, with the politics of reproduction? So in that, that, that's an ethical, philosophical situation, which it's not, it doesn't have one plus and one minus. It doesn't have two minuses. It doesn't have two pluses. It has like a minus, a plus, and two more minuses. It's not easy is what I'm saying. Like there's a lot of things about that situation that are almost irresolvable or irreconcilable. Yeah. And for Morrison to draw out that situation, where is the wrong, where is the right, and how on God's earth does someone survive that or make that type of choice? 
and and what are the conditions that led up to putting that person in a position or driving them to make that choice yeah and I, I almost often, unspeakable yes and, and i i often think about how she her college major was uh, classics and this is often compared to euripides's medea who kills her children but in that story it's just out of jealousy toward her husband so she's taking this and embedding it in a much richer you know historical and political dilemma but it's still i think it's properly tragic if the tragic if the the key to tragedy um is the idea of something that uh well hegel if i can quote hegel uh says the tragedy is when not when good and evil collide, but when conflicting goods collide, when conflicting mm-hmm. uh, goods collide each in their own one-sidedness, you know? And so that's the ethical knot she's in. So Setha is, in ex- is placed in an extreme situation, the whole, the whole knot. Well, some of it is she's recovering from it. Yeah. But maybe the most extreme situation you can think of. How does maternity... Um, fit in in her characterization? Is it heroic and self-sacrificial, almost like in a Christian sense? Is it the endurance of motherly love? Or is it um, fundamental wickedness and, and, and irrationality and loss of control? And she's just this blunt carrier of the trauma of, of slavery and that lashes out on the world and lashes out on her own kin. I think the overall sort of arc of the novel is to bring her to a point where she can, where that can, that can only be, where motherhood is allowed to be only one part of her identity. And one of the things that was so awful about slavery was that it reduced her First to a, a breeding body, and then then in her resistance against that, this figure of maternal uh, sort of vengeance. But in any case, that was all she was 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 a mother. And by the end of the novel, I think the idea is that she has to, because the novel almost feels like a kind of therapeutic rite. It has a kind of uh, it builds to a crescendo, and then the energy kind of dissipates. Well, it's, and, a, it's a novel of rememory. It's a novel yeah. of processing the past. Right. It's a novel of people being unable to live in their present moment without being assaulted and, and contorted by the past and efforts to release, come to terms with, understand accept um, those those traumatic those traumatic experiences in in the best ways that they know how um, and on that level it's an inc- incredibly sad book yes and maybe one of the saddest books I've ever written I've ever yeah <laughs> I've ever read right but it, it, it does seem to have a a sort of happy ending, like a, a kind of at least potentially triumphant conclusion that Setha is able to overcome this, realizes that she has worth independent of this uh, of this maternal role. Yeah, there's goodness. 
yeah at the end but what what am i left with in beloved and it's done and she, morrison has this way where it's it's not a um, guilt-ridden portrayal of of the black experience in the 19th century that she uses as a bludgeon against readers. She has a way of asking for nothing in her depictions. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but with, and knowing that that sort of attitude that comes out in the prose actually opens up the sensibility of maybe a white reader um, to be more effective, affected and altered by the, and sympathetic to the um, the struggle of African Americans. My uh, one of the more powerful examples is that insistent metaphorization of the the tree to the Seth is whipped back. Right, right. And the way it's scarred and the and the patterns and, and likening it to to a tree, and then the first time their sexual intercourse between Paul D and Seth, it's the imagery of the tree sort of being cooled and handled. And mm-hmm. and it's so heartbreaking. And especially because, you know, if you, you can feel always feel her womb in this novel and you can feel her breasts and her life-giving uh, features. It is so heartbreaking to, that it's a devastating metaphor because – it's rendered in an American natural landscape, and then if it, and if it um, lands successfully in the reader, maybe you'll never look at a tree the same way. So, like, yeah. what is Morrison planted? <laughs> right, and right. what could be more devastating and more conducive to the cause of a historical understanding than that sort of very literary, almost non-political, but ultimately yeah. political, like. Achievement. Well, yeah, there's a remarkable passage where Seth is thinking about the the plantation they were on, which is kind of ironically called Sweet Home, and she thinks that she remembered the, how beautiful the trees were, but also she remembered the boys hanging from them, mm-hmm. and she couldn't forgive herself for thinking of the beauty of the trees and sometimes not thinking of the boys hanging. And I thought what was interesting about that is Morrison is trying to say that this is a book very much speaking back to 19th century American literature in a lot of ways. And I think she's trying to say to maybe the white romantics that there's something you're leaving out with your apolitical romanticization of the landscape, but also to black Americans that overcoming this history will sometimes be the apolitical perception of the landscape. Mm-hmm. So that if you're a white person and you've never seen the, if you look at a tree and you never see the boy, that's a problem. And if you're a black American and if you look at a tree and you always see the boy, that's a problem. So there's this kind of parallax reclaiming of the natural landscape for both a political and an apolitical purpose. So Morrison's interested in, in reclaiming nature yeah, it's a very physical novel. It's a very lyrically beautiful novel. Um, it's a novel full of trees and flowers and turtles and ferns and mm-hmm. dogs. Um, and 
And maybe this is the time to mention something else about the book, which is its incredible form. So let me make a couple of observations about the form. Sure. So it's the novels in three parts. The first part has 18 chapters. Mm -hmm. The second part has seven chapters. The third part has three chapters. Mm -hmm. What is the date of the narrative present in the book? 1873. Okay. So the book embodies the history it's discussing. And then what do you get when you add up 1873, 28? Mm-hmm. There's 28 chapters, 28 days of the menstrual cycle. And Setha has 28 days of freedom between when she arrives at her mother-in-law's house and when the owners come back to claim her. Yeah, and you got 28 seconds to get to the point. My point <laughs> is that Morrison, with this numerological structure, is trying to say that the book is history, the book is the female body. It was the effort of a woman to love her children, to raise her children, to be responsible for her children. And the fact that it was during slavery made all of those and all of those things impossible for her. How do you survive whole? I can't do this quickly. It feels crazy. It is crazy. Um, you know, that's a nice, big, fat, eastern, western philosophical question. Who is the beloved? Who is the person who is Sometimes you don't survive whole. You just survive in part. Who kept records? Did you look and see how many people died in those ships? Who is the beloved? That the people who do this thing, who practice racism, are bereft. There is something distorted about the psyche. It's a nation. It's a real nation. Nations are nations who did not live. I'm not a victim. I refuse to be one. I didn't have to do it. I just had to imagine it. So I can't be too self-regarding and precious about all that. Behaving as beautifully as one can under completely impossible circumstances. It's not, it's one thing to sort of know historically, abstractly, conceptually, generally what it was like, but imagining that life. Beauty is just more interesting, more complex. How do you feel? Who is the beloved? Who is the person who lives inside us? And is the one you can trust who is the best thing that you are? How do you feel? How do you feel? And if you're going to survive and be around for your children, you just can't stay there. You just can't dwell there in the past. They're all in my books. You are your best friend. They're all in my books. And of course, if you think that the people who did arrive and did stay alive were the strongest and the toughest, I mean, they lasted, then you have this race of these sort of giants here in the country, in the country. Then I thought, wait a minute, they're going to skip over something. And no one's going to remember that it wasn't always beautiful, you know. Okay. Okay. The book is alive. So the book is is in cycles. Yeah. It works in cycles. Yeah. It's not a, a, a dot on a linear, uh, it's not a point on a linear plane mm-hmm. that that recedes forever eventually into into oblivion it's a cyclical recurring mm-hmm. um cr- creative force yes it's, it's that's that's its energetic 
arrangement. And that, the narrative is nonlinear. It's you're always circling the subject. I know everybody's remembering. Yeah, everybody's remembering. I like to remember things my own way. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it just makes me think of the the line Beckett said about Joyce's books. He said. These books aren't about something. They are the thing. They are the thing. And I think that's what she's trying to do. This book this, is history. This book is the body. It's not about these things. It is these things. Yeah. So let's talk about let's talk about how to be a good ally. Okay. <laughs> My favorite topic. And if there's one character to con- consult in, in Beloved about how to be a good ally, ally training. <laughs> ally training commences now. <laughs> Hey, tamp, everybody. Tamp down your white fragility, everybody. Hey, everybody. <laughs> I think there's only one character in The Beloved to think about. Who's that? Amy. Yes. Be more like Amy. <laughs> I mean, there, it, it, there is. I mean, there's a... What kind of allies, Amy? There's a strain in Morrison. Like I said, I think her politics are very unpredictable. I think there's a... I think there's a deep right-wing strain in Morrison a lot of people don't want to deal with, but there's also a bit of sentimental leftism. And I think that comes out at several points in the novel. So in the novel, Amy is a poor white girl who is an indentured servant who helps Setha to give birth. And there is a way in which I think Morrison wants to... So first of all, she's rewriting Huckleberry Finn. So we have the white and the black uh, pair uh, in in the in, in this case, it's two women instead of two men. And I think one of Amy's first lines doesn't she say something to Setha about uh, Have you ever tasted huckleberries? So Morrison mm-hmm. clues us in on that. She's so American. She is, yeah. Um, but there's also a way in which Morrison wants to create these images throughout the novel of collaboration across lines of difference. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that she's. Uh, she very much thinks that she, I think that, that people who are poor and impoverished and uh, I think she calls both Setha and Amy throwaway people. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're a throwaway person, no matter your race or gender, then you should collaborate and, and ally and get together. And But what is interesting is Amy doesn't verbally say anything nice. Amy uses the N-word. Amy's kind of brusque and... Self-centered. Don't up and die on me in the night, you hear? I don't want to see your ugly black face hankering over me. If you do die, just go on off somewhere where I can't see you here. Yeah, Amy's macro-aggressive. Because at this point in the novel, Setha is journeying up to Ohio, had just escaped, had just gotten her back whipped and was pregnant with Denver and was about to go into birth and would ultimately die and was happened upon by Amy, basically the white working class... Yeah. <laughs> There's definitely a political allegory here. Basically like that white girl who's also a little hood. Yeah. Who's <laughs> like down to be an ally. But actually Amy would be the white girl who doesn't give a shit about ally training. Right. And just is live that life. Yeah. Grew up in, in North Minneapolis and mm-hmm. defended for herself and got the shit beat out of her by a pimp and knows what that – extreme misogynistic uh, violence against women racial violence understands what it is by because by nature and by culture she's tuned in to those instincts of survival 
Yeah. And I think that um, it's important that she never says anything particularly nice, but everything she does is nice. You know, everything she does is kind and compassionate and helpful. And I, I think, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but I think Morrison would probably look a little bit askance on this idea that everything has to be so hyper-focused on using the correct language rather than having a material alliance. Because that's, that's what Amy represents to you? I think so. And it happens at the end of the novel, too, where there's a, a community of black women who get together to help Setha. And Morrison's very clear that this is a community of people of different classes, people of different religious beliefs, people of different attitudes. Some people look down on Setha. Some people are religiously motivated. But they're able to find something in common and work toward that goal. Right. And one thing they have in common is is being embroiled being embroiled in female anatomy. Yeah. Yeah. And th- they bond in those fluids in right. <clears throat> quite literally there's So Denver is named after Amy because Amy's going to Denver. No, Amy's name is Amy Denver oh. and she's going to Boston. Oh. So one thing they share is this experience and understanding of the, the the most raw vulnerable moment of a female of a female anatomical existence, which is the giving birth, mm-hmm. and Amy is there. And there was a moment earlier in the text. I love this moment when, when Seth said, "Oh, we were in the boat." This wasn't in the full recounting because I think the full recounting is actually routed through. Denver talking to beloved. It is, yeah. So, so we not, never get Setha's memory, right? But yeah. Setha does have fleeting recollections mm. that are written about. So, but in one of one of um, <clears throat> Setha's recollections, she, she said, "I was breaking so much water that she was worried it would it would flood the boat, right? Because yeah. they were going up the Ohio River. Mm-hmm. And what isn't that just?" Isn't that there's some there's something Old Testament about it? It is, yeah. But there's also like you break so much water that you become nature itself, or you mm-hmm. you drown into the. Um, yeah, and in, it, yeah. In the passage where she gives birth, there's this whole digression about. Oh, I got I got it here. You read it about the spores. <laughs> the spores. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> well, where are the fucking spores? There's the shoes, and there's the dress, and there's the boat, and where's the spores? Hold on, I have marginalia. So they're ready to have a they're ready to have a baby on a boat. Mm-hmm. Morrison writes, Setha couldn't think of anywhere to go but in. She waited for the sweet beat that followed the blast of pain. On her knees again, she crawled into the boat. It waddled under her, and she had just enough time to brace her leaf bag feet on the bench. When another rip took her breath away, panting under four summer stars, she threw her legs over the sides, because here comes the head, as Amy informed her as though she did not know it, as though the rip was a breakup of walnut logs in the brace, or of lightning's jagged tear through a leather sky, it was struck, face up and drowning in its mother's blood. Amy stopped begging Jesus and began to curse his daddy. Push, screamed Amy. Poe, whispered Seth. And the strong hands went to work a fourth time, none too soon for river water, seeping through any hole it chose. 
With spreading over Seth's hip, she reached one arm back and grabbed the rope while Amy fairly clawed at the head. When a foot rose from the riverbed and kicked the bottom of the boat and Seth's behind, she knew it was done and permitted herself a short faint. Nothing ha oh, Coming to, she heard no cries, just Amy's encouraging coos. Nothing happened for so long that they both believed they had lost it. Seth arched suddenly, and the afterbirth shot out. Then the baby whimpered, and Seth looked. Twenty inches of cord hung from its belly, and it trembled in the cooling evening air. Amy wrapped her skirt around it, and the wet, sticky w women clambered ashore to see what, indeed, God had in mind. What a um, textured yeah. biological <laughs> birth scene. Right quite unbelievable but you like this metaphor she weaves in or the this imagery yeah right after what you just read is what seems like a you know a digression spores of blue fern growing in the hollows along the riverbank floated toward the water in silver blue lines hard to see unless you are in or near them lying right at the river's edge when the sun shots are low and drained often they are mistook for insects but they are seeds in which the whole generation sleeps confident of a future and for a moment it is easy to believe each one has one will become all of what is contained in the spore will live out its days as planned this moment of certainty lasts no longer than that longer perhaps than the spore itself so this Whoa. way of embedding the whole narrative in natural cycles that aren't romanticized she says most of those spores are going to die and there's nothing certain and not every thing or person will grow to fulfill all the possibilities of its nature but that all of this is contained within nature. Mm -hmm. And it's a way of telling this story that could just be told at the level of the political on a more cosmic level, on a more, uh, on a grander scale that encompasses the entirety of the natural and supernatural worlds. But nothing hokey and nothing overly sentimental and overly romantic to get there. No, because it's, it's all so concrete. Okay. You see the spores. You you could you could imagine it. You can see it. It's all. It's not didactic because it's all through imagery. Well, it may have to do with the the power of her prose style. Yeah. And how she inhabits the tongue of of this American English, this developing American English. I have a line towards the end. Which may coincide with your fascinating hypotheses about nature. So these ideas on nature and Morrison's uh, magnificent use of it, uh, it's not just ex routed through female characters. There's also the male slave relationship with the natural land, and that, that m comes out mostly through the character of Paul D., right? Yeah. How does Paul D. strike you through this novel? He's an interesting figure and maybe gets to Morrison's ideas on gender because on, on the one hand, a lot of what we were saying might sound like she's pretty essentialist. You know, women women are the ones who give birth and this novel sort of embodies that female cycle of experience. And 
And that's true to a point. I, I don't think this you could really, if you're 100% committed to some of the ideas about gender today, this is going to be a pretty uncomfortable reading experience, The you know, the, the what is a woman kind of a discourse, where mm-hmm. I think Morrison, to a point, I think knows what a woman is. But she's also of the generation that distinguishes between that biological sex aspect and then the way gender roles are mm-hmm. enacted in all their variety. And so Setha has many masculine traits. She's proud and she is um, driven and she is uh, strong, you know, conven- I mean, yeah. conventionally masculine right. traits. And Paul D has conventionally feminine traits. He's nurturing, he's kind. And there's that great line that he was the kind of man who could walk into a house and make the women cry. Right. Because he's a, you em- know, empathetic. Empathetic. He's a good listener. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And he, I mean, they really go through it, all characters really, and especially main characters. Paul D. really goes through it, spends time at Sweet Home. I mean, those conditions, it's it's such a, this is such an amazingly um, effective novel on in its depictions of slavery. I mean, it's, it's, it's really... Um, <clears throat> affecting and to hear about the conditions there at sweet home with paul d and then he went on the run and then he ended up in a in a penitentiary for slaves in georgia and was abused and subject to torture and then was on the run all throughout the united states a fugitive slave ended up in delaware and then found his way to ohio and they're very much like these these sexual motivations for Slaves and former slaves, and Setha, um, their encounter is very much grounded in a type of sexual exchange um, that he's a bit ambivalent about mm-hmm. and doesn't quite totally enjoy, but is driven to repeat it over and over. Yeah. Like almost in the same way that Amy would rub her feet. Mm-hmm. Um, seems like a similar errand. Yeah, and and a lot of Morrison's books, this idea comes back, and this was actually very politicized in the time she's writing, which is that I think she had the idea that men were often uncomfortable with monogamy and marriage, and she depicts that a lot, that men have this Odyssean desire to flee, Mm -hmm. to go on adventures. And and she said in interviews, because this is she's writing in the 80s and 90s, and this is the time where everybody's the neoconservatives— in the Republican and Democratic Party are lamenting the broken black family and the mm-hmm. matriarchal black family and the Moynihan Report. And I think she wants to say, so the fuck what? So, you know, it's okay. We can manage these relations. If uh, a woman can be the head of the household, a man can go on an adventure, uh, let's not be so judgmental about the shape a family has to take. And mm-hmm. and she, you know, she was she had a, a, a kind of socialist bent, and she said we should probably reorganize society to just make it easier for mm-hmm. people to live different kinds of arrangements. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so Paul D exists on on and maybe that so sociological frame. Yeah, as a peripatetic. <laughs> Uh, patriarch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> but he, is, he also has a moment towards the end of the book where he exists as um, a character that, for me, 
gets in this depiction gets vaulted into a kind of a a a, a national pantheon of american characters so characters that don't just exist for themselves but exist for thousands and hundreds of thousands of of americans mm-hmm. or who contain like many many thousands of people in them and it happens here for me in the book and this is so he's describing his journeys reflecting as they always do in beloved they always reflect i always think back and he walked everywhere across the United States, and this is what he says about his his attempts to escape slavery. In five tries, he had not had one permanent success. Every one of his escapes from Sweet Home, from Brandywine, from Alfred, Georgia, from Wilmington, from North Point, had been frustrated. Alone, undisguised, with visible skin, memorable hair, and no white man to protect him, he never stayed uncaught. The longest had been when he ran with the convicts, stayed with the Cherokee, followed their advice and lived in hiding with a weaver woman in Wilmington, Delaware, three years. And in all those escapes, he could not help being astonished by the beauty of this land that was not his. He hid in its breast, fingered its earth for food, clung to its banks to lap water, and tried not to love it. On nights when the sky was personal, weak with the weight of its own stars, he made himself not love it. Its graveyards and low-lying rivers were just a house, solitary under a chinaberry tree, maybe a mule tethered and the light hitting its high just so. Anything could stir him, and he tried hard not to love it. Yeah. Wow. So the land is this fecund woman that mm. he loves and is trying not to love. But a national, with a national character. Yeah, yeah. This is, I, this is not completely devoid of national political boundaries, this love. No, um, yeah. Well, and, and isn't she echoing uh, the great Gatsby, the breast of sure. the new world? But you know what the irony, the dramatic irony here in this paragraph hmm. is... Is that it, it is his land. Yeah. That it is their land. Mm-hmm. More so than most, actually. Right. Which they don't know, and they'll never live to, in that first generation, that Reconstruction era generation of escaped or freed slaves, might maybe, I don't know, due to the trauma, might never have even had that consciousness, or it was inconceivable to be told that it was their land yeah and their rights and their possession mm-hmm. and their dignity and and uh, and sovereign earned sovereignty therein they but the the irony here with Paul D is that it very much is his mm-hmm. and that's routed to him through sort of a natural fingers to the dirt food nourishing but what we know is that in sort of a Lockean sense how that directly translates into a type of ownership which is their claim and will be their claim for as long as the United States um, is established. Yeah, and I think the the fact that it's a dramatic irony points to something that maybe isn't realized enough about this novel, which is that everybody in this novel is illiterate, right? Almost all the main characters are illiterate. 
she except wants Denver. except Denver, right? Denver represents the next generation. Yeah. yeah. Um, but she wants to write about the people who weren't able to write the slave narratives. Right. Because Frederick Douglass or Harriet Jacobs were able to make some of those claims in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. But I think Morrison correctly thinks that if you didn't have the opportunities, they eventually were able to avail themselves mm -hmm. of liberty and political debates mm -hmm. and literacy and acculturation, then you probably wouldn't think of yourself in those terms. Um, you wouldn't think of yourself as claiming American identity in the way Frederick but Douglass he, could. Sure, but he does here through a more through that natural encounter with it. Or yeah. Through that giving and taking the metabolizing of the land itself. Mm -hmm. Which is that step towards a sort of abstracted political possession. Yeah. But do, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, I made a face. Um, <laughs> well, that brings us to the, I think this, there, there's a political question in this book for me, which is, I mentioned that Morrison gives everybody's perspectives and there's no, you know, angels and devils, but that's not 100% true. There is a devil in this book. Okay. That's school teacher. So yeah. the plot of the novel is the original white patriarch of Sweet Home is... She's very nuanced. She she describes him as among the kindest masters there could be, but she also describes him as priding himself on making his male slaves men. So mm -hmm. that's kind of that idea dramatized most notably in uh, in the film Get Out of of sort of white people parasitizing black virility to aggrandize mm -hmm. themselves. Mm -hmm. But he does treat them better than the other slave owners do. But he ends up getting, sounds like he gets killed. We're never ever told anything directly in this novel, but it sounds like he gets killed by his neighbors who resent him mm -hmm. uh, precisely because he thinks of slavery differently from they do, from the way they do. And then his wife ends up bringing in her brother-in-law, who's only, the only name he's given in the novel is school teacher. And he's an educated man and he is obsessed with categorizing and cataloging the slaves. And the moment Setha decides she needs to escape is the moment she overhears him telling the other, his white uh, sons or nephews or whatever it is, he's trying to teach them the sort of biology of slavery. Mm -hmm. And he, she overhears them, them talking about her. And he says, put her human characteristics in one column and her animal characteristics mm -hmm. in right. the other. And that's when she realizes she's not going to let her children be subjected to this. Mm -hmm. And what that makes me wonder about this book, and even sometimes a little bit, you know, worried about this book, or about Toni Morrison's politics, is there's a way in which that depiction puts literacy and the command of language and learning and knowledge all in the column of a kind of uh, danger, a kind of evil. And the characters who are just what you're describing, who are literally earthy and touch with the earth, they're unlettered, but they're 
in the dirt, they become sort of harrowized and, and sometimes romanticized in that way. And the last time Paul D. sees Denver, she's learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's she's going to be sent to Oberlin by this kindly old white liberal woman. Mm-hmm. And Denver says, she's experimenting on me. And Paul D., it says, he didn't say, be careful, watch out. And it seems like Morrison is maybe, you know, saying, watch out, watch out for for language, watch out for literacy, watch mm-hmm. out for the professional class. And the reason I say that worries me a little bit is because what she does is she screens off from the reader her own class power. She's the school teacher writing this book. She's the, you know, umpteenth mm. generation following Denver mm-hmm. of, you know, Virginia Woolf's daughters of educated women. And so what does it mean when this middle class intellectual creates this idea of a collective racial unconscious where every black person is equally traumatized and equally subject to rememory, mm-hmm. and yet she's circulating it really as her own expert discourse that nevertheless says beware expert discourse. Mm -hmm. So I do think this novel is responsible for some of the problems you and I have discussed with identity politics. That's interesting. So in effect of that could be a anti-intellectualism. Of the intellectual. Yeah. Yeah. Morrison disowning her own intellectualism as a way of beefing it up or a a validation of anti-intellectualism within black activist and intellectual movements Mm -hmm. and thinking that deficiencies of formal reason or traditional study or any one of the components that that are taught in a in a liberal arts education um, deficiencies of that are they're not a problem and in fact it might be a good thing if you don't know those things because you have sort of a natural black force which could yeah. overpower right right overpower anything in its way um, you and I are reading different editions of the book I have the uh, an edition that has her forward yeah. from 2004 and in the forward she describes the circumstances in which she wrote the book yeah. And she says that she had just finally got to a point where she made enough money as a writer that she was able to quit her job as an editor. And for the first time in her life, she didn't have a day job and her children were grown up and she she was free. Her days were free. And that's when she started thinking about slavery and what freedom meant. Mm-hmm. And what I hear in that is almost what you might call like a kind of liberal guilt, mm-hmm. like – and I think I, I totally understand that, but I wonder if by describing this idea of inherent, almost supernatural racial trauma and the racial unconscious, because there's a line in the book where Seth says, you walk down the road and you bump into someone else's rememory. Mm-hmm. So there's a collective Jungian racial consciousness. If this isn't a kind of a troubling way to overcome that racial guilt, to to assert a connection that's maybe not as organically there as you want it to be. Yeah. Yeah, and if the if the collective unconscious and the rememorization and if that's trans historical or ghostly is another way of 
putting transhistorical. Then it's it's threat from whiteness can also be logically transhistorical. Right. So it's never there isn't ever a point in which it is absent or benign. Yeah. But it's always like chur- always churning. Mm-hmm. Which, if that's the metaphysical understanding of of American United States racial history, then at all times the the black subject is is fighting or yeah. like is always fighting mm-hmm. against is always under the heel of this thing that continues to churn right. transhistorically. Mm-hmm. Which I don't know. Yeah, you, you asked a. Um, <clears throat> if you ask a, a, a Marxist, African American Marxist like Adolf Reed, that he would say that that orientation is borderline psychotic, mm-hmm. as far as yeah, political mobilization. Right, and I know Walter Ben Michaels, who's not black but yeah. is kind of a Marxist, just tore into this book and uh, some of his criticism, saying that it. It precisely does this creation of this metaphysics of race so that you don't have to talk about class, which that's too – I mean, you can go too far in either direction. Well, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you don't want to be that guy. Right. You don't want to be a class not race guy. Yeah. But you also – I think on these grounds, it's – for me, it's it's not class not race. It's it's race but not – that attitude towards race. Yeah, it's from same thing with me. It's, I'm not a class reductionist Marxist, but I'm always a little bit nervous when people make race metaphysical, yeah. supernatural, uh, yeah. essentialist in that way. And I, sure. I do think in this book, um, you know, I, I criticize this book because it's so powerful, and I think because yeah. it's had influence. I criticize Toni Morrison for the same reason I criticize Shakespeare. Uh, it comes from comes from love, but uh, but also because I know the power and the influence that these books have. So you need to be attentive to these ways in which they're transmitting things that maybe aren't so great. I was mentioning the psychological resonances in the power of this book. I read this book and I was reading it almost maybe if you'd read, and I don't want to be crude here, but by bringing up doctors and clinicians, but uh, (laughs) almost as if you'd read a case report or a really sensitive treatment plan of someone's mental health and their experiences, psychological, psychiatric experiences. And this book was so rich in that grain in in a way that was probably unintentional and can be read more in more detail um, where we are today with discourse around psychology and discourse around mental health conditions, specifically trauma. Um, but at the time, maybe Morrison wasn't writing through that discourse directly, obviously not, and it would be anachronistic, although anachronism is a part of this text, to maybe impose diagnoses on these characters. Mm-hmm. Diagnoses such as post-traumatic stress disorder, insetha, mm-hmm. mental health disorders which emerge out of experiences and traumatic events and stress responses within an environment. I was seeing that 
and those um, all through this novel. Mm-hmm. In the constant presence of traumatic memories and an inability to piece them together in a coherent way, there are two T words in this book, trauma and tradition. And we talk about mm-hmm. tradition, and now, yeah. now there's trauma. <clears throat> and, they're mo- and they're both equally fraught today in their individual discourses. And this is w- this is what she's carrying. And and I was I was talking to you earlier, John. Like um, we're always a couple of degrees removed from what's actually happening in Beloved. The way it's written, the way the scenes are described, there isn't any sort of uh, complete realism in its description. Mm-hmm. It's fragmented. It's severed. It's misunderstood. It's misremembered. Agents within a given memory appear in color and then disappear. Yeah. Gruesome fragments are layered in, but they aren't connected to a clear explanation of what exactly happened. Bits of tongue, bits of flesh, blood, milk, iron, whiplashes. Um, these are strewn across. Because, and I think in the whole novel, it's like the whole novel is written that way. And in the, what is it? What are the numbers? The 418 house? Uh, 124. 124. Um, or 124. 124. That's another. And, yeah. <laughs> I, I hate to interrupt you, but she has four children and she kills the third. Yeah. Hmm. Sorry. But, I mean, thinks of everything. No, that's where I'm getting because yeah. 124 was spiteful, full of baby's venom. The woman in the house knew it and so did the children. For years, each put up with this spite in its own way, but by 1873, Seth and her daughter Denver were its only victims. This is the how the novel begins. You don't get uh, a winding road to a coherent destination. Yeah. You don't get the gentle introduction of a of a, a cumu- of a character who will accumulate in 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 detail over the text in perfect correspondence to events and motives. You get violence, trauma, wreckage. Mm-hmm. You're thrown into it right away. Yeah. And. If you want context, keep going, right. and maybe you'll get it. Maybe you won't. But there's no point in this novel where she gives you sort of clarity for its own sake. Right. Everything is removed from itself. And my point with all this is that this is how trauma is processed by an individual. Individuals who go through extremely tra- uh, traumatic events and who carry that, where it's literally embodied because trauma, stress responses generate chemicals in the body which 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 lodge and and are stored there and the remarkable thing about it of is that all of the embodied stress from the initial event that can be activated in sort of that same extreme flight or uh, fight or flight way just through associated stimulus so bodwin comes to represent school teacher every master she's had every rapist in his approach, mm-hmm. every person who tried to take her away from her children, which reactivates the endorphins and the stress response. In a sense, the event, the violent event of trauma, whatever it is, when it's reactivated, it actually gives you a pain killing response. Mm-hmm. So it's not a pure moment of horror and discomfort, there's an anesthetizing response that the body gives you in defense of the thing itself so it's like why do people with domestic violence why do people with 
with child with with child abuse why are these generations of of uh, of violence and trauma keep recurring well there's something in the very act that very seed of violence when it approaches it drives a certain response in the brain that kills the pain and the soul and the sullenness and the morose depressed condition that people often carry who have that sort of trauma it it numbs it temporarily here's the ending of that chapter in her response with that in mind setha feels her eyes burn and it may have been to keep them clear that she looks up the sky is blue and clear not one touch of death in the definite green of the leaves it is when she lowers her eyes to look again at the loving faces before her that she sees him guiding the mare slowing down his black hat wide-brimmed enough to hide his face but not his purpose he is coming into her yard and he is coming for her best thing she hears wings little hummingbirds stick needles needle beaks right through her headcloth into her hair and beat their wings and if she thinks anything it is no 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 she flies the ice pick is not in her hand it is her hand standing on the porch beloved is smiling but now her hand is empty setha is running away from her running she feels the emptiness in the hand setha has been holding now she is running into the faces of the people out there joining them and leaving beloved behind alone again in Denver running too, away from her to the pile of the people out there. They make a hill, a hill of black people falling, and above him all rising from his place with a whip in his hand, the man without skin looking, he's looking at her. So that moment as a recalled traumatic stress event and the blindingness of it and the irrationality of it, the delusionary nature of it, the compulsory nature of it, and attacking, in the end, the source of, of the evil, of the trauma, of the original event, and seeing that face everywhere. Right. I mean, we don't know fully what Morrison was reading or thinking when she wrote it, but when I, when I think about the tradition she's coming out of, when she would have had her literary education, that would, would have been the high period of Freud. And one of the key concepts Freud has is the compulsion to repeat, where you have some originary... I don't know if necessarily trauma, but some irritant that you haven't brought to your conscious light to process. Mm -hmm. And that leads you to keep repeating neurotically the coping mechanism you you had to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. And so that would have been an idea she had in mind. And then in the modernist novels that she was so interested in, in Faulkner and Wolf, uh, who sort of use that stream of consciousness technique she uses a mm-hmm. lot in this book, their their characters tend to circle and circle around some moment in the past that right. shaped them. So I think as a literary technique, she's very interested in in using that idea of the almost repressed trauma that leads to some, yeah. some repetition compulsion in the yeah. present. Um, I guess I, I I've often been worried about the way this language of trauma is used today. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm also worried about. Well, tell me about that because I I have a. I see it in different camps. I see it in a more cultural camp, but then I see it in a clinical mm-hmm. setting, and I 
try to differentiate those. Yeah, and I don't know exactly what goes on in a, a clinical setting. Uh, perhaps I should. Some people might say it's interesting, um, but um, but I guess like the casual use of trauma, mm-hmm. or the idea of inherited trauma, or the idea of what it is that causes trauma, mm-hmm. so that everyone is able to cite. And don't get me wrong, I think that there's a way in which, especially early experiences, shape what happens to your psyche later and the way that's embodied, your nervous system. And everybody, I think even probably, yes, even the most privileged people had some early negative experience, emotional, physical, that uh, that lodges in there and, and sort of malforms the personality. So I, I don't doubt any of that, but I also worry about the way in which these psychiatric labels, you know, as they're sort of self-diagnosed on TikTok, become these self-fulfilling prophecies of the personality. Absolutely. So, you're pre- so I am traumatized, I am this, I am that, and you never, and I guess it makes me think, this comes back to the idea of Morrison sitting on her porch thinking about freedom and writing about these sort of people who are shattered by the traumatic experience and can't sort of fully ever articulate themselves because it's so uh, so uh, obliterated their sense of linear time, you know, one, two, four, an interrupted mm-hmm. sequence. And then I think people who actually went through some of the things she describes in ways that, frankly, she probably didn't, did make their way to a more ordered discourse, whether that be a Frederick Douglass or, or an Olauda Equiano. Yeah, but those, that's, I, I take the point, but that's, um, those are exceptional mm-hmm. cases, I would say. So it's important that she's writing about ordinary people. This is, or, or this is ordinary. And I agree with that the self-fulfilling nature of the psychiatric, the culture of psychiatry. Psychiatry shouldn't be a culture. It should be a, it should be a, like a basic feature of a civilized society that's dispensed responsibly mm-hmm. when it's needed. Mm-hmm. Like that. Right. <laughs> that's like, it shouldn't be, it's like a cultural attitude. Like, yeah. A, I totally agree with that. I would say that, and it, the way that the word trauma is used it's it's wielded by um, political movements, extreme left political movements, as a bludgeon. There are there's good some good evidence on epigenetics and like how the stuff is passed down. That stuff is interesting, but that stuff gets politicized and wielded in ways that aren't nuanced. And but I will say about so there's all that shit, but then there's like what get to get back to Lacan, then there is, like, the real. Mm-hmm. There is extreme trauma. Yeah. S- very serious, like, violations that certain individuals in history, certain, some periods more than other, this period in an extreme way, that are a fact of many, many people's existence. And... The idea of trauma as not not a libidinal thing, not not a cultural thing, not even I mean I guess psychological, yeah, but but as like a physical thing that's embodied mm-hmm. and alters the nervous system in ways because it it really at the end like 
if you get past all the layers of beloved, it's a story about people in the 19th century, people with matter and bodies and some language, vocalization. There's no fucking magic. There's no ghosts. There's no spirits coming in to save them. It's people with fucked up matter yeah. and like broken nervous systems and like large distances between them. Right. Well, and that's the, what is the reparative discourse in the novel is baby Suggs' sermon where she says, you must love your flesh. You must love dance. Your, yeah. She makes she them knew. dance. That's yeah. exactly the solution. Right. That's exactly the solution. Mm-hmm. But that's what beloved is. And it's, and it's, I've used the word routed like 10 times today. Um, but, but it's, it's routed through all of these techniques and, and symbols and extra dimensional presences. Mm-hmm. But it, beloved is like, and you don't ever get to see it because you wouldn't want to see it. Not many people can handle seeing it. And there's maybe a little snapshots. Beloved is, it's like, it's about black Americans. It's about slavery. It's about like being super fucking wasted physically and, and when your nervous system by slavery. Yeah. Like way fucked up. Yeah. That's what that book is about. Yeah. Be- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And she, I I've mean, said the regenerative stuff, but I'm saying right, like right. matter, the oozing matter that DeLillo talks about, like yeah. the smashed penny mm-hmm. in, Li- in Libra, the goat head. Maybe history is just a series of matter. And yeah. Like, this is beloved. But you don't, and she you does. can't handle that. And she, people can't handle that. She, f- Heroically, it's a heroic act of the imagination. I mean, it, it probably sounded like I was criticizing her earlier by yeah. saying she's writing about it from a distance, but she does everything imaginatively to to close that. It'll be really interesting to see just to preview our, our a future episode when we talk about Virginia Woolf because she wrote about a trauma she didn't directly experience, which was the Great War and the ways in which the psychiatry of her time failed that. And I, I think that that's something. And Morrison wrote her master's thesis on suicide in Virginia Woolf and Faulkner. Wow. So I think that she's so keyed into that, you know, that psychology of the, of the violent traumatic experience. The other thing, Sam, about what you were just saying is, and maybe this goes back to what I was saying at the beginning of the episode, is the, the therapy is to reorient the body and not just to re reshape the way you think that seems to me to be a very uh, catholic idea interesting say Um, more catholicism is a religion of physical ritual the the ritual of the mass and the different ways you stand you sit you kneel you turn you shake hands you go receive the communion you take the body of christ into your body there's even the famous line i think from pascal who said if you want to uh if you want to have faith don't Try to have faith as an internal state. He said, kneel, and then you'll believe. Kneel Change first. your posture. Change your posture. Change your breathing. And I think that's one of the ways in which you can see Morrison as a writer of a deeply Catholic sensibility. That mm-hmm. sense of the, the spirit and the flesh are one, and that the uh, orientation toward the divine or toward the good is only ever going to be a physical orientation, whereas Protestantism, especially in America with the Puritan legacy— has that deep sense of the inward, mm-hmm. turning inward, turning away from the mm-hmm. the exterior world. So, so uh, Toni Morrison's Catholicism coming through. Toni Morrison as quietly conservative. To- yeah, I feel like she sometimes gets claimed for 
a set of you know political ideas that maybe was isn't born out in the fiction. It is born out in the nonfiction because she was because she was a Straussian. <laughs> That's she interesting. Knew, I don't know. She knew where her she knew where her money was green. She had a really good sense of like political loyalty, and I think she thought the sense I get from her writing is that the Democratic Party was the party of the interests of black people and women and working people. And yeah. she didn't fully, I think, it only started to happen toward the end of her life that that last part, working people definitely right. stopped being true. It was a different Democratic Party in the it 70s. Was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even It was an even a different Democratic Party in, 2000s. in the 2000s. I, I think that it's a real tragedy what's happened. But... Uh, I think we we don't. I think we wouldn't want to associate her so much with that that new Democratic Party that's just the professional class. Um, and yeah, there's a conservative impulse. Yet, yet they um, captured her her visage. Yeah. After her death, and and put her squarely within their political aims. Right. And, and sometimes, if, well, how does that how does that make you feel? Well, come on. <laughs> I mean, sometimes it's funny. I remember. So I mentioned that introduction she wrote to the collection she edited on O.J. Simpson, in which she made some shocking remarks. And let me briefly characterize the shocking remarks. She says in that introduction that the feminist claim that we must never blame the victim, we must never ask of a woman in what circumstances was violence or sexual assault committed against her. She says that that's ultimately infantilizing. That's a feature of a kind of patriarchal attitude in which women aren't agents responsible for normal comportment of oneself in the world that might affect how the world treats one, which is a startling thing to say. Uh, she goes so far as to say, um, you know, people say it doesn't matter what she does if she was assaulted. And Morrison says, it. this is a verbatim quote, it does matter what she does. And... That, that's kind of a race thing, too, though. Yeah, because I think she sees the ways in which false rape accusations were yeah. used against black men, for one yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And the way that white women were sort of infantilized in the guise of being privileged. Every time I hear the word infantilize, I want a delicious orange soda. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wonder what that is. Oh, Fanta. <laughs> Fanta, I just got yeah, it, Sam. Yeah. Um, you're, you're real quick. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Thomas Hobbes, <laughs> those fucking goddamn witticisms. Get to the point, you, you stupid fucking dallying poets. But one time, Sam, during Me Too, uh, I saw on Twitter somebody made a meme where Morrison meme wrote. Too. What? Nothing. Meme too? Oh, I got it. I just got it. (laughs) Fuck, man. Um, Somebody made a meme that showed Toni Morrison's face and it said, sexual Congress must be by consent. And that's the line that she's ventriloquizing that a naive white feminist would say before she goes on to criticize it in that essay. It's like you didn't, you clearly didn't read the whole essay. So that's that's symptomatic of a broader way in which... I wish there were better terms for what is it? Wokeism, progressivism, rich white, yeah. rich white women, successor ideology. Yeah, yeah. They take, they, uh, they take great artists based on identity alone, without bothering to actually contend with their contributions. Right, and a great artist is always multitudinous and contradictory yeah. and that pisses me off yeah me too that makes yeah. me want to 
I mean, and it's no that, less. That makes me want to <laughs> go up to the Supreme Court. And, oh, be careful! Yeah. Uh, no, that it's docs no, of justice. <laughs> it's the same thing as when you say, uh, uh, you know, uh, we're gonna we're gonna take Faulkner and not read him because he's a white racist, and we're gonna elevate Morrison and read her because she's a black female heroin and yeah. that's you're doing the same thing really to both of them yeah. is you're flattening them out it's one dimensionality yeah. it's not reading and yeah morrison was more reactionary on gender than mailer was when she put a medal on mailer she she uh she presented loved she loved mailer she was a badass bitch <laughs> yeah <laughs> um yeah and she has... hold on now we're doing it okay, okay. so <laughs> to, towards the end this is a penultimate chapter or this is penultimate whatever the there's no goddamn chapter numbers in this goddamn book. Um, so this is so Paul D's jerking off in a cornfield. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> this <laughs> the the thirty. He's talking about the thirty mile woman. He's talking about the six O trying to describe what he felt about the thirty mile woman. Six O is a great character. Oh, I don't yeah. have time to get into him, but yeah, seven O. I know a guy like six O. Um, keep him as a friend <clears throat> if you do. He says about the 30-mile woman, she's a friend of mine. She gather me, man, the pieces I am. She gather them. She give them back to me in all the right order. It's good, you know, when you got a woman who is a friend of your mind. Yeah. So Toni Morrison is a woman who is a friend of our mind. Absolutely. She puts the pieces back together. <laughs> she's she's one of us, and there's never no question about it. She's writing that for this is about how when men read Morrison, like when men like us read Morrison, we're yeah. like, God damn, she's fucking good at writing. Yeah, I got a friend in her, man. I <laughs> she knows how to throw down. <laughs> um, she, and to me, she's all about that. It's not a boys' club. It's it's she. It's not a boys' club with Toni Morrison. It's not a boys' club. Mm-hmm. Because who's doing? Who did what she did? She's amazing. Yeah, Isn't she amazing. She is, and. This is a book you you read it once and you're going to be thinking about it for the rest of your life.